Into the Universe of Technical Images by Willem Flosser Translated by Nancy and Roth 2011 Part 2 Chapter 8 To Interact Technical images are not mirrors but projectors. They draw up plans on deceptive surfaces, and these plans are meant to become life plans for their recipients. People are supposed to arrange their lives in accordance with these designs. At least that is the way technical images function now, and this has given rise to a social structure in which people no longer group themselves according to problems but rather according to technical images. Such a social structure requires new social criteria, a new sociological approach. Classical sociology begins with people, their needs, desires, feelings, and knowledge, and divides society by relationships between people, for example, into groups such as families, nationalities, or classes. Classical sociology's cultural objects are mediations between people, and those objects, such as tables, houses, and autos, are therefore to be explained starting with the people. Such an approach and such criteria no longer apply to contemporary social structure. No longer people but rather technical images lie at the center, and accordingly, it is the relationships between technical images and people by which society must be classified, for example, by groups such as cinemagoers, television watchers, or computer users. Explanations for people's needs, wishes, feelings, and knowledge are to be found in technical images. For the sociology of the future, it means that people must be pushed out of the center toward the horizon of the field of inquiry, and this precisely to the extent the discipline seeks to preserve human freedom and dignity. The relationship between technical images and people, the interactions between the two, are therefore the central issues of the coming cultural criticism, and all other issues are to be grasped from this point. What is immediately striking about this interaction is its intensely projective orientation. A technical image is directed toward a person. It presses in on him and finds him in even the most secret reaches of his private space. A person no longer goes from the private into the public, to the market, to school to inform himself, and if he does this in spite of the ubiquity of technical images, then this is because the new social structure has not yet fully asserted itself. Marketplace, school, and comparable public spaces are archaic spaces, unsuited to contemporary communication, and they will be abandoned. In fact, public announcements, demonstrations, and open-air festivals are still scheduled, and coaches drive about assembling tourists on beaches and ski trails. Yet this is not public, political assembly in the exact sense of the word but rather program disinformation. Technical images press through countless channels, television channels, picture magazines, computer terminals, into private space. They replace and improve the distribution of information that once occurred in public spaces and in so doing block off all public spaces. People don't go from the private into the public anymore because they can be better informed at home and because there is essentially no public space left to which to go. 
one single technical image, namely, film, appears to run counter to the insistently projective orientation. In this case, it looks as if images are projected against a publicly erected screen and that people must go to a public space, the cinema, to see these images. It looks as though cinema is a kind of theater, namely, at picture house. If this were true, one could claim that in film, a technical image makes a political gesture, drawing people from the private into the public. And if cinema were in fact a theater, that is to say, a place of visibility, of a theory, then one could say that film is a case of a technical image showing its viewer how to see through appearances and liberate himself from the image. Unfortunately, this is a mistaken view. Film is shown in cinemas not to awaken a political and philosophical consciousness in its viewers but because it relies on a technology from the 19th century, when receivers still needed to go to the sender. And since this technology no longer suits the general social structure, it is being improved. Films are being replaced by electronic recording technologies, and cinemas will disappear. There is a tendency to reconstitute cinema in new communicative contexts to preserve a political consciousness, a public space. Similar things have been undertaken in theatre, at least since Brecht, in concerts, at least since Cage, and in the opera, at least since the site of the production was moved from the opera house to the street. But the question arises whether a political consciousness vegetating in an artificially preserved republic is worth the rescue effort. The penetrating force of technical images drives the receiver into a corner, puts him under pressure, and this pressure leads him to press keys to make images appear in the corner. It is therefore an optimistic nonsense to claim to be free not to switch the television on, not to order any newspapers, and not to photograph. The energy required to withstand the penetrating force of technical images would project such a person out of the social context. Technical images do isolate those who receive them in corners, but they isolate those few who flee from them even further. However, the reception of technical images does not end the communication process. Receivers are not sponges that simply absorb. On the contrary, they must react. On the outside, they must act in accordance with the technical images they have received by soap, go on holiday, vote for a political party. However, for the interaction between image and person under discussion here, it is crucial that receivers also react to the received image on the inside. They must feed it. A feedback loop must appear between the image and the receiver, making the images fatter and fatter. The images have feedback channels that run in the opposite direction from the distribution channels and that inform the senders about receivers' reactions, channels like market research, demography, and political elections. This feedback enables the images to change, to become better and better, and more like the receivers want them to be, that is, the images become more and more like the receivers want them to be so that the receivers can become more and more like the images want them to be. That is the interaction between image and person, in brief. I will give two examples of this interaction, one of a film and the other of a television program.
People sit in a darkened room and stare at a shimmering screen, on which giant forms appear to move. To sit there, they stood in line and then were distributed in geometrically ordered seats. An arithmetic row has become a geometric structure. Geometrically distributed, the people arrange themselves to receive the program, to be programmed, comfortably. From thinking objects, they have become geometrically extended objects. The Cartesian problem concerning the assimilation of the thinking subject to the extended object has been resolved in the cinema. Now the forms on the screen begin to jump instead of glide. The receivers know what it means, the projector is not working properly. If the receivers were slaves in a platonic hell, they would welcome this, for it would be a step toward their release from looking at shadows. Cinemagoers, however, turn their heads toward the projector in irritation. They have paid to be betrayed. A consensus exists between them and the screen serving the interests of betrayal, a contract arising from feedback between the screen and the viewer. The contemporary cinemagoer is the result of having been fed by previous films, and the film on the screen is the result of having been fed by previous cinemagoers. The longer this mutual feeding continues, the stronger and more stable the consensus between image and people will become. A Brazilian football club plays against a German one in Tokyo, and a Brazilian scientist watches this match on his television screen. He is among the few who want to escape technical images, and football is for him a means of alienation that he holds in contempt. Nevertheless, under the pressure of technical images, he has switched on his monitor and is entranced by the program. To dampen his enthusiasm, he calculates the length of the shadows the players throw and from the divergence between night and summer in Brazil and day and winter in Japan. He wants to dispel the magic, explain it scientifically, and so break the spell. He succumbs to the spell nevertheless, for the program activates layers of his personality he had thought long since buried, example, patriotism and rowdiness. At first, he thinks he has caught his enthusiasm from the enthusiasm of the Brazilian players. Under critical analysis, however, he confirms that these players were enthusiastic because they knew he and those like him were watching them. They were not playing as a function of the match but as a function of the image's transmission. They were engaged not, or not primarily, in the game but in television images. The enthusiasm is therefore an aspect of the feedback loop between image and people, the images become more exciting the more excited the receivers are, and the receivers that much more excited the more exciting the images are and it happens even when they want to overcome the fascination of the images. The consensus between image and person, strengthened automatically through feedback, turns everyone into receivers, whether they were initially willing or not. And this consensus forms the core of a society governed by technical images. A closed feedback circuit appears to have been set up between image and person. The image shows a washing machine that it wants us to buy, and we want the image to show us the washing machine because we want to buy it. The image shows a political party for which it wants us to vote, and we want the image to show us the party because we want to vote for it. 
This circuit can't actually be closed, however, for then the images would fall into entropic decay. There would always be the same images, reproduced ad infinitum. To get better, to always give the receiver something new, to be able to program innovatively, the image must get feedback from somewhere other than the receiver. The images feed on history, on politics, science, art, on events of so-called daily life, and not only from current but also from past events. A photograph shows a political demonstration, a film a battle that has been fought this week, a television program a reconstruction of a 19th century laboratory, a videotape a renaissance building. In this way, it begins to look as though technical images were windows through which the receiver, having been driven into his corner, can observe things that are happening outside, and as if these images could always renew themselves because new things are always happening and because the sources on which they draw, past history, could never be exhausted. On closer inspection, however, both the window-like character of technical images and the inexhaustibility of history oriented to past and future turn out to be in error. Current events no longer roll toward some sort of future but toward technical images. Images are not windows, they are history's obstructions. The goal of the political demonstration is not to change the world but to be photographed. The goal of the battle that has been fought this week is to be filmed, the war in Lebanon was an important event, namely, the first in which this reversal of history away from the future and toward the image could be observed. And this initiates a novel sort of interaction, a feedback between image and event. The event dines on images, and the images dine on events. The moon landing was made to produce a television program, and a mission to the moon was on the television broadcaster's schedule. Part of getting married is to be photographed, and weddings conform to a photographic program. This will become increasingly clear for all events. Our historical consciousness defends itself against this new conception of history. We look for examples to establish that there are interactions free from the pool of technical images, example, the relatively image-free war in Afghanistan. We don't want to know about the threat to free exchange we see in these images. But it is just then that we realize to what extent an actual historical event such as that of the Afghani freedom fighters is being contained within the horizon of the present. In its first, current phase, this reversal of events from the future to the image causes events to speed up. Events are caught in the undertow of the images and roll against them more and more wildly. One political event follows another more and more precipitously, a scientific theory is introduced, an artistic style replaces another almost before it has been established. The lifespan of a model is now measured not in centuries but in months. Progress accelerates. Yet the models don't fall over each other to change the world, but always, in theory eternally, to be shown in images. The linearity of history is turned against the circularity of technical images. History advances to be turned into images post-history. That implies that the source from which history springs is beginning to dry up. This source is human freedom, that is, 
the decision to act to make the world the way it should be. But when one's actions are no longer directed toward the world but in the opposite direction, toward illusion, it is no longer possible to speak of freedom in the sense intended earlier. The one who acts then finds himself in a feedback relationship to the images very like the feedback relationship of the receiver. It can be seen in the example of the football game on television. Such an interaction is exciting for the receiver because the players are excited, and the players are excited because of the reception. History has become theater. But on close inspection, past history also turns out to be a source that could be exhausted by technical images. It is true that we have assembled a huge quantity of information in the course of millennia. It is also true that a still greater quantity has been forgotten and could be recovered. But this quantity is still finite, and the gluttony of technical images is huge. Although the length of time images have been sucking up history is short compared to history's full duration, the first signs are appearing that this source is exhausted. Images are beginning to scratch at the bottom of a well thought to be bottomless. It makes no difference whether the images draw from the present or the past. For them, such historical categories have lost their meaning. For these images, the universe of history is nothing more than a field of possibilities from which images can be made. And once there is an image, everything is in the present and turns into an eternal repetition of the same, whether it is about a battle in the Lebanese War or in the Peloponnesian War. In this way, the images reach back to transform the past into a current program designed to program receivers, as the past is reduced to serving as a source of images. What we call a history is the way in which conditions can be recognized through linear texts. Texts produce history by projecting their own linear structure onto the particular situation. By imposing texts on a cultural object, one produces cultural history, and by imposing texts on natural objects, which happened relatively recently, one produces natural history. Such historicizing of conditions affects people's perspectives. Because nothing need repeat itself in a linear structure, each element has a unique position with respect to the whole. In this way, the historical way of reading the world turns each element into a unique occurrence, and each missed opportunity to shape the course of history becomes an opportunity definitively lost. This dramatizing state of mind characterizes historical consciousness. It stands in opposition to the prehistoric state of mind, for which everything in the environment, as in an image, must repeat itself, for which time moves in a circle, bringing everything back into its proper place, and for which the point is not to change the world but to escape just punishment for interfering with it. The wars between the Germans and the Romans offer an example of the collision between historical and prehistoric consciousness. They are part of Roman but not of German history because the Romans, but not the Germans, saw them as singular, unrepeatable events. Technical images translate historical events into infinitely repeatable projections. Had there been videos at the time of the Battle of the Teutoburger Forest, one it would have been possible to spin this battle as new every evening, 
and had it been possible to synthesize images at the time, the battle could have been spun differently each evening. Someone who wants to make history today, to be a new virus, has to contend with video. But that's ridiculous, for the new virus would be aware that he only imagines an action, whereas the actual envisioner of the video image, even if that were he himself, acts according to completely unfamiliar criteria. A consciousness appropriate to technical images operates outside history. Stories and texts become materials for images. Technical images make Hermon just as impossible for the Cherasai, however. For Hermon felt powers, gods, fate, settling around him, whereas a new Hermon would know that his heroic deeds could be reprogrammed on video. For technical images, history and prehistory are pretexts from which to draw nourishment. In their current first phase, technical images can still constantly renew themselves by feeding on history. But history is about to dry up, and this exactly because images are feeding on it, because they sit on historical threads like parasites, recording them into circles. As soon as these circles are closed, the interaction between image and person will, in fact, become a closed feedback loop. Images will then always show the same thing, and people will always want to see the same thing. A cloak of endless, eternal boredom will spread itself over society. Society will succumb to entropy, and we can already confirm that the decay is on us, it expresses itself in the receiver's zeal for the sensational, there have always to be new images because all images have long since begun to get boring. The interaction between image and person is marked by entropy tending toward death. Given the kind of interaction that currently exists between images and human beings, both with those who receive and those who act, we can expect an end to history with a probability bordering on certainty. No catastrophe of any sort, example, nuclear, is necessary, technical images are themselves the end. These images are programmed for an eternal return of the same, they were invented for this specific purpose, to bring an end to linearity, to reactivate the magic circle and a memory that eternally turns, bringing everything into the present. Not some series of catastrophes but rather technical images themselves are apocalyptic. The current interaction between images and human beings will lead to a loss of historical consciousness in those who receive the images and, as a result, also to a loss of any historical action that could result from the reception of the image. But this current interaction is not yet leading to the development of a new consciousness unless it changes radically, unless the feedback is interrupted and images begin to mediate between people. Such a rupture of the magical circle between image and person is the task we face, and this rupture is not only technically but above all existentially possible. For images are beginning to bore us, in spite of the contract we have with them. The traffic between images and people is the central problem of a society ruled by technical images. It is the point where the rising so-called information society may be restructured and made humane. Chapter 9, To Scatter Technical images are at the center of society. But because they are so penetrating, people don't crowd around them, 
rather they draw back, each into his corner. A technical image radiates, and at the tip of each ray sits a receiver, on his own. In this way, technical images disperse society into corners. Each technical image, except for film, as discussed, is received as the endpoint of a ray, as a terminal. So the scattered society forms no amorphous heaps, rather the corners are distributed according to a structure that radiates outward from the center. These rays, channels, media, structure the society as a magnet structures iron filings. The society, spread apart by the magnetic fascination of technical images, is indeed structured, and an analysis of the media can bring the structure to light. Media form bundles that radiate from the centers, the senders. Bundles in Latin is fasces. The structure of a society governed by technical images is therefore fascist, not for any ideological reason but for technical reasons. As technical images presently function, they lead on their own to a fascistic society. This social structure began to appear only a few decades ago, breaking through the previous social structures like a submarine through ice. As it breaks through, social groups that bound human interaction fall apart. Families, nationalities, classes disintegrate. Sociologists and cultural critics are characteristically more interested in the fall of the earlier social structure than they are in the rise of the new. They pay more attention to the cracking ice than to the rising boat. This is the reason they speak of a decaying society rather than a new society. They criticize the falling structures rather than criticizing the new ones. With the family, they speak of phallocratic machismo, with nationality, of chauvinism, with class, of the struggle between classes. They are kicking dead horses. The explanation for this critical blind spot is easy to find. Disintegrating social forms are more interesting than new ones because they are sanctified by familiarity. The family, for example, is a serious matter, and a high value is placed on the human relationships that constitute it, example, the love between man and woman or between parents and children. When families fall apart, the underlying values are lost. Therefore a constructive critique of the decaying family, example, the suggestion of alternative family models such as kibitzes or cooperatives, appears to be justifiable. But in fact, every attempt to rescue the family from the intrusion of television or the computer is a hopeless, reactionary project. It is one of the ice shards that drift and dissolve. In comparison to the family, new social forms, such as newspaper subscribers, are not interesting. They are not sanctified. There is no higher value ascribed to the relationship between the newspaper, its sender, and its receivers. Those who criticize these new social forms appear to be sidetracked, but in fact, it is exactly these new forms that demand our concentrated attention. For not only are they displacing the old, sanctified forms, they are also consecrating new relationships and new values. If the point of cultural criticism is to maintain and increase human freedom and dignity, then its focus must be on just these new forms. 
for only if we can recognize the rising fascistic patterns in time to change them may we hope that a humane society could emerge from technical images revolt against our inherited social structure. The present cultural revolution is technical, not ideological. Therefore inherited political categories such as liberal and socialist, conservative and progressive, no longer apply. That may confound critics. But really effective revolutions have always been technical. Let us take as an example the most powerful revolution known to us, that of the Neolithic. It grew out of the new technologies of farming and animal husbandry. These technologies overturned the earlier Mesolithic structures and led to new family groups, to the village, to war, to private ownership, to slavery. These new social forms were sanctified after the fact and endowed with value. Not the founders of Neolithic religions but the inventors of cows and flour were the revolutionaries, and had a contemporary critic tried to evaluate the situation from the standpoint of outmoded ideologies, example, had he tried to evaluate the hunter's value, he would have missed the point. The first industrial revolution may be another case in point. It, too, was technical. Its revolutionaries were the inventors of machines, and the social forms they produced, example, the proletariat, were consecrated only in retrospect by religious figures such as Marx or Lenin. Today's revolutionaries are not Qaddafis or Mainhoffs, but rather the inventors of technical images. Nips, Lumiere, the numberless and nameless inventors of computer technology, these are the ones who have brought the new social forms about. And so if we want to instigate a humane society, we must understand the new technologies, not higher values. For example, we must ask whether it is technically possible to modify the fascistic structure of radiating images. Such technical questions are the politically interesting ones today. We can leave the retroactive consecration and valorization for a later time in someone who founds religions. Those who think politically according to older categories and perhaps think that technology is politically neutral are missing the cultural revolution. The destruction of traditional social groups through technical images, example, the family through television or nationality through satellites, looks like decadence from the standpoint of the past. Society drifts into corners, into the lonely mass, and interpersonal bonds, the social tissue, dissolve. The young Californians who sit in isolation at their computer terminals with their backs to one another have no social awareness. They belong to no family and identify with neither nationality nor class. From a non-ideological, that is, phenomenological perspective, it is possible to recognize the appearance of the new social connective tissue. It is possible to recognize the threads that bind these new people to the senders of technical images. It becomes clear that we are dealing not with an asocial person but with one who is very profoundly socialized, although in a new sense. In fact, we are dealing with people who are so completely socialized that we justifiably fear for their individuality, despite their apparent isolation. The scattering into isolation appears here as the flip side of the coin Gleichschaltung, political alignment, point one.
According to the current circuitry for technical images, this fear is justified. But there are signs that this pattern could change. For the new social structure is dynamic. The threads that order it run from image to isolated person and back to image. This traffic between image and person, this feedback that threatens to become entropic, forms the isolating, homogenizing core of society. But there are threads that start to run another direction, namely, from one person to another, straight across the bundles of rays that bind images to people, dialogic threads that cross the horizontal, discursive media bundles. Dialogic threads, such as cable, video phones, or conferencing video, could open the fascist tissue of the rising society to the kind of web we are in the habit of calling democratic. And if such a web was actually constructed and images installed according to such a pattern, one could no longer speak of isolation and political coordination. For then people of the future would truly be in dialogue, in a global conversation. Whether and how dialogic threads can be drawn is a technical question. But the truly revolutionary engagement would be to turn this technical question into a political one, and that means to turn the scattering of the population to the service of human freedom and dignity by rebuilding the circuitry of the images, directing the force of the rising society toward the advancement these values. Such an engagement assumes, of course, that the rebuilding of the circuitry itself be undertaken dialogically. For when the dialogic threads from senders, such as governments or commercial institutions, are introduced at present, they must remain in the service of the sender, despite their dialogic function. In this way, the net preserves its fascistic, bundled structure. To turn a technical question into a political one, it must be torn from the technician's hands. Technology has become too serious a matter to be left to technicians. In other words, the revolutionary reconstruction of the current circuitry of technical images into a dialogical, democratic one presumes that a general consensus must exist in this respect. The people must want it. There is no prospect for such a consensus, however. On the contrary, at present, there is a consensus between the images and their bundled streams, on one hand, and the receivers, on the other. The people want to be scattered by the images so that they don't have to collect and assemble themselves, as they would if they were in fact a dialogue. They are happy not to have to do it anymore. For at one time, when society was ordered by interpersonal relationships, there was an out-group and an in-group, there was public space outside, example, outside the family, and a private space inside, and one spread himself out in public to assemble himself in private. Hegel called this the unhappy consciousness, if I go out into the world, I lose myself in it, and if I go into myself to collect myself, then I am lost to the world. This unhappy consciousness is happily no longer required. For in the dispersed society, there is neither inside nor outside. The unhappy consciousness rests. There you can spread out as you wish, and every dialogue is dangerous because it could awaken the unhappy consciousness from its sleep. 
The consensus between image and person rests on the disinclination of people to collect themselves, as much as on the intention of the images to disperse people. But unhappy consciousness is the only form of consciousness there is, for happiness is not conscious. People want to disperse themselves to lose consciousness, to become happy. The present dispersal of society has resulted from a general wish to be happy, we are on the way to a happy society. Shangri-La is just around the corner. Everyone is at once a mouth that sucks on the images and an anus that gives the undigested, sucking back to the images. Psychoanalysis describes this happiness as the oral anal phase, cultural analysis calls this happiness mass culture. It is happiness at the level of the nursery, intellectually as well as morally and aesthetically. The present dispersal of society can be seen as a move toward this happy twilight condition. Today's revolutionaries, those who want to spin threads through the narcotizing discourse, decline to take part in this general consensus about happiness. They are muckrakers. They want to awaken this fading consciousness because they believe that the mindless happiness sponsored by the images is demeaning, that is, present-day revolutionaries are working towards something that only they want. They take action exactly against the general consensus between images and people, and they know they can achieve nothing as long as the others don't go along. They know that it isn't technically difficult to draw dialogic threads, such as cables, video telephones, or video circuits, but that such circuits are merely gadgets and will remain nonsensical as long as there is no political will to use them to rebuild the society, as, for example, the current pornographic babble with Minitel in Strasbourg.2 present-day revolutionaries know that they first have to build a consensus. Their action is not against images but against the current feedback consensus between images and people. This action is utterly unspectacular, for if it was spectacular, visible in images, it would be self-defeating. It would then simply assist in dispersing people. The people that are shouting and sounding alarms today, the Che Guevara's and Khomeini's, and those who count as revolutionaries are really entertainers. They are spectacular, and the spectacle they present assists the images in dispersing us more and more effectively. The true revolutionaries, on the other hand, do not appear in the images. But that does not necessarily mean that they are inaccessible to the scattered society. It is true that they can't be seen in the images, but we can see them by looking through the images. For although the revolutionaries don't show themselves in the images, they appear in the manner in which the images show themselves. Revolutionaries can manipulate the images so that people begin to glimpse the possibility of using these images to initiate previously unimaginable interpersonal relationships, that the images could be used for dialogue, the exchange of information, and the fabrication of new information. Because the scattering images are beginning to bore people, and a dialogical game through images with other people could be suspenseful and exciting, one can just about imagine that the revolutionaries could succeed in breaking the feedback loop between image and person and creating a new dialogical consensus.
Contemporary revolutionaries are not actively opposed to the images themselves but rather to the integrated circuitry. They actively promote dialogical, rewired images. Contemporary revolutionaries are envisioners, photographers, filmmakers, video makers, computer programmers, grounded in the revolution in technical images. Their visionary powers are focused on a society in which people exchange information through images and, in so doing, constantly produce new information, improbable situations. Only as a result of this new capacity to visualize does it become possible to conceive of such a social formation. The revolutionaries want to change not only the underlying structure but the surface of the so-called information society. The social structure that is now appearing represents a synchronization of radiating images with the dispersed, lonely, depersonalized people who sit at the terminals of these rays. Revolutionary visualization tries to replace the structure with another in such a way that the images bring new interpersonal relationships into being and lead to new social configurations, the names of which remain unknown for now. Such a social configuration would still be characterized by technical images. In fact, it would deserve to be called an image culture more than our current culture does. But instead of the traffic between people and images, it would be traffic between people by way of images that would lie at the heart of such a society. And only then would the media earn the name that unjustly designates them today. For only then would they link person to person, a bit like nervous pathways and nerve cells joined together. On the basis of such links, the society would continually produce new information. Such a society would perhaps best be called a global brain. It would be a humane society, for to generate, transmit, and store information is uniquely human. This, I believe, is the project of the new revolutionaries. It is an opposition to the present society, controlled as it is by discursively ordered images. But it is not an attempt to reconstruct any social configuration from the past. Contemporary dispersal cannot be reversed. On the contrary, it requires a new form of assembly. It is high time that our received, consecrated groups fell apart. They were pernicious, ideologically grounded, misery-making groups. Now that they are about to disintegrate completely, new groups can be formed. They can be informed. The task is to reintegrate a society that has disintegrated into the infinitesimal. Such formulations of contemporary activism are intended to show how firmly contemporary revolutionaries are rooted in the dimensionless universe, on the grounds of hallucinatory, image-producing abstractions. Technical images must first destroy the old society so that a new one may appear. Today we are witnessing, not decadence, but the emergence of a new social form. And we can actually see this now. The relationship between people and images is descending into entropy, a fatal boredom is setting in, generating an impulse toward a new consensus opposed to mass culture and in favor of a humane visual culture. This new social structure can be seen, with a bit of optimism, as a transitional phase in the rise of a new culture. Chapter 10 To Instruct
Technical images are currently connected so that their senders are at the center of society, places from which the images are broadcast to scatter and disperse the society. There are precarious places. When you approach them, whether to take part, to join in the broadcasting, or to criticize, to remodel the circuitry, they present themselves as illusions. They are like the proverbial onion, layer after layer comes away, but when everything has been understood, explained, there's nothing left. It appears that no one and nothing lies at the center of contemporary society, senders are nothing but those dimensionless points from which the media bundles stream. For cultural criticism, this is an unpleasant discovery. When you're criticizing culture to change it, you want to be fighting something solid, example, dark men behind the scenes or grey eminences with evil intentions that can be exposed. If you start to expose contemporary society, however, you realize that there is nothing and no one to fight. One is not so much tilting at windmills as storming Kafka's castle. For one is fighting a how rather than a what. Not people and things, but contents. Not images and the human interests that stand behind them, but circuitry. Therefore it is not surprising that many cultural critics yield to these new demands and, all evidence to the contrary, go on looking for manipulators and power brokers among the senders. They immerse themselves in the senders. These are soft, padded places, areas of software, where such immersion is possible. What they find is that apparatuses and the functionaries that sit before them are becoming more and more numerous, smaller, more completely automatic and faster. A button pressing is underway, a noise that is becoming steadily quieter. The critics confirm that each time a button is pressed, an order goes to some medium to send out an image. They have the impression of having stumbled into the center of contemporary decision-making, and this in a double sense of a decision. First, the senders appear to subjugate the society by attracting a higher and higher proportion of the people, turning them into functionaries. Second, the senders appear to use their buttons to prescribe what happens to the society, what it is to do. This impression is mistaken because under current conditions, the concept a decision demands rethinking, as will be shown in a later chapter. It is true that more and more people serve the senders, the apparatus. Work in the traditional sense, namely, the gesture that alters the form of our surroundings, can be turned over to automated apparatuses more and more effectively in more and more workplaces. Therefore it is true even now that most of us no longer work and that, in the foreseeable future, all of us will be without work, unemployed. We will be free, that is, to press buttons, if only to program the machines to do the work and so to enter fully into the service of the sender, the service sector. But this does not mean, as many cultural critics assume, that instead of farmers, the proletariat, and the middle class, we now have a new class before us, namely, functionaries, and that we can proceed with roughly the same categories as before. Functionaries are not a social class. What characterizes a class is class consciousness, an ideology drawing on work experiences, 
work knowledge, and work values. Class is a way of life. But being a functionary is not a way of life, and so there is no functionary ideology, no functionary class consciousness. For a function takes up only a steadily diminishing amount of time, and the experiences, knowledge, and values of functionaries do not derive from this time but from images seen at leisure. What is crucial for contemporary society is not that we are becoming functionaries for senders but that we are receivers. Our way of life, our ideology, is not that of functionaries but that of receivers. Senders control us not because we serve them but because they serve us. It is equally true that each press of a button sends commands to the media and through the media to society. But it is an error to see this as a gesture of decision-making. Button-pressing functionaries, typists, photographers, bank directors, generals, presidents of the United States, in short, those who compute, do choose among the keys available to them, but this choice is prescribed for them. And this is not done by anyone or anything but by the automated self-feeding structure of the broadcast program. For example, the American president presses a button according to a program, a video image appears as programmed on his terminal, and this image shows Russian missiles over Alaska. He presses another button according to the program, and cities fall, as programmed, to ashes. Of course, not all button pressing has equally significant consequences, and so it can be ordered hierarchically. In such a hierarchy, the American president would stand above the bank director because the president's button pressing transforms cities into ashes, and the touch of the bank directors only sets industries into competition. The bank director would rank higher than the television operator because when the operator presses, he only calls up images on terminals. But such a hierarchy can't be maintained. For when the president presses a button, cities are destroyed as a result of the video operator having pressed one. And if he, too, is pressing as a result of the Russian general secretary having pressed a button, then the general secretary's action has from his standpoint, triggered the action of the video operator. It is therefore an error to see functionaries, however highly they may be placed, as power brokers or decision-makers or to suspect more highly placed, concealed decision-making centers behind them. It happens automatically. With respect to the sender, there is no elite for us either to embrace or reject. Functionaries themselves do tend to misrepresent the situation when asked, or even without being asked, however. Not long ago, for example, the French president said on television that the strike force was only an inactive tool that was entirely at his disposal. The president's illusion of being Louis XIV, à l'état, c'est moi, would be touching if it did not bode so ill for any understanding of the current situation. We are disposed to lend the functionaries credence. If they claim to control the apparatus, aren't they supposed to know what they're saying? Regrettably, they do not know what they're saying. They, too, are carried off by the languid, automatic flow of the apparatus. They are blind to it. This is why, if we want to look into it, 
we must ask generalists, people with an overview of the state of the apparatus. This investigation shows that it doesn't matter whether the French president is Mitterrand, Giscard, or Dupont. He will press the red button at the moment prescribed by the program of the apparatus. Social centers, senders, are padding, whereas apparatuses and functionaries calculate and compute instructions as instructed. Acknowledging this embarrassing but unavoidable fact obliges us to ask two questions, how did it come to this? And what can be done about it? Both questions were implicit in the previous chapters and will now be considered explicitly. Around the mid-19th century, as the guiding principles that had once ordered the world and structured thinking in a linear way began to disintegrate, the problem of how to reintegrate the dispersed particles made its appearance. This problem had already been solved in the 17th century in a partially satisfying way in the field of mathematics. Newton and Leibniz invented calculus, and this method was then applied, on one hand, to the physical universe and, on the other, to logic. At this point, apparatuses had to be produced to put this method into practice, first, apparatuses whose purpose was to integrate the world's particle elements, the camera was the first of these apparatuses, and later, apparatuses whose purpose was to integrate the particle elements of thought, leading to the computer. Such apparatuses, in contrast to earlier machines, do not operate in a procedural continuum but in a Democritan one universe of particles that they must capture. As soon as such machines went into production, something like a revolutionary discovery came to light, namely, that atoms combine with one another spontaneously and that, eventually, all such combinations must occur spontaneously. The discovery was subversive because it led to automation. However, if one reads Democritus in light of this discovery, one is surprised to realize that he already had the basic idea of automation. His concept of Klinemann, the accidental deviation of a particle from its prescribed path, can be read as a preview of mechanical automation. At this point, it became clear that it was not necessary to capture the particle elements, they do this spontaneously. What is necessary is that two other conditions are met. First, one must know which of the available combinations one wants to produce. It is true that all combinations are foreseeable in principle, but some are more probable than others. It was the improbable combinations, the informative ones, that were wanted, and they only occur by blind chance after very lengthy, astronomically lengthy, computation. So, second, the play of pure chance had to be accelerated to secure the desired combinations within a human time frame. This, then, is automation, to build an apparatus that speeds up chance events and to prescribe, program, it to stop when the desired coincidence has occurred. Looking more closely, it becomes clear how revolutionary automation is. For from now on, Human freedom no longer consists in being able to shape the world to one's own desires, apparatuses do this better, but to instruct, program, the apparatus as to the desired form and to stop, control, it when this form has been produced. 
here a new freedom arises, which apparatuses are supposed to serve. But unfortunately, the exact opposite very soon began to occur. Apparatuses become faster and faster and slipped out of control. The number of automatically produced coincidences and their consequences surpass any human capacity to control them. In this way, the possibility of stopping the apparatus at the desired coincidence is lost. The program becomes independent of human intention. It becomes autonomous and rolls on until every coincidence has been realized, even those human beings originally wanted explicitly to avoid. Examples of such autonomy of programs can be seen everywhere, not only in the military but also in the political, industrial, cultural, and administrative apparatuses. The original intention of producing the apparatus, namely, to serve the interests of freedom, has turned on itself. Certainly for the time being, most apparatuses are not so completely automatic that they can get along without human intervention. They need functionaries. In this way, the original terms human and apparatus are reversed, and human beings operate as a function of the apparatus. A man gives an apparatus instructions that the apparatus has instructed him to give. In this way, a powerful flood of programs is unleashed, a flood of software with which people no longer pursue any particular intention but rather use to issue instructions as a function of an earlier program. As these programs become more complex and clever, they demand faster, smaller, and cheaper apparatuses, more congenial hardware. And so one generation of apparatuses after another appears. With each new generation, human intention recedes further into the background, the intention, that is, that produced the first generation of apparatuses. For the time being, in the current generation of apparatuses, this original human intention has not yet completely disappeared. The evidence for this is that a given program cannot be run on all apparatuses. The variability of programs is one last echo of the original intention. For example, it looks as though two giant apparatuses, the American and the Soviet, are fighting one another over our heads and that the difference between them could be traced back to an original human intention. But such a polytheistic view of the situation, Zeus fights Pluto, and we have to choose between the two, despite having surrendered to them, does not apply. Human beings, in fact, originally program these two apparatuses, but they have become largely autonomous. They are neither gods nor supermen but subhuman, obdurate automata. They roll along blindly, according to accelerated chance. They could destroy one another, and the humanity that feeds on them, by chance, but that is just one of the possible coincidences that lie in their program. Another coincidence is more probable, as the two apparatuses roll along, they interact with one another, mesh, and move randomly toward a complete synchronization of their two programs to a global totalitarianism of apparatuses. And between these two possibilities, there are other possible, theoretically calculable, futurizable possibilities. The evidence can already be seen everywhere that a full synchronization of the two and of all 
programs is the most probable alternative. The tendency toward a global unification and coordination of all programs to a global meta-program can be seen in a mass culture that takes the same form all over the world. Clothing, dance, music, and above all images hardly look any different in America than they do in Russia, Brazil, or the Philippines, and that despite all the differences that could still be established between the apparatuses that operate in those places. At present, the individual senders have not become standardized with respect to one another but still send out bundles that partially cross one another. Around these transmission points sit functionaries who press the keys of apparatuses, especially those that compute images. For these images model the behavior, perception, and experience of all other functionaries. The functionaries instruct the images about how the images should instruct the receivers. The apparatuses instruct the functionaries how they are to instruct the images. And other apparatuses instruct these apparatuses about how the functionaries are to instruct. Throughout this seeming and self-obscuring hierarchy of instruction, one senses a general entropic tendency toward a global meta-program, and no one and nothing other than this implacable self-determination is behind it all. This implacable self-determination, this tendency toward entropy, probably indicates the way we are going, toward a global totalitarian apparatus. But it is human to oppose entropy. This is why humans produce the apparatus in the first place, to produce improbable situations. They lost control of the apparatus, and now it produces the probable automatically. And so the question is, can they regain control and so achieve the opposite of the probable, the opposite of a totalitarian apparatus? As independent beings, scattered and isolated functionaries and receivers, people have definitively lost control of the apparatus, as this chapter tried to show. The apparatus's capacities, the speed at which they can compute, their storage capacity, their memory, is greater than the capacity of the human brain. On the other hand, the capacity of society as a whole, as a collective brain, is in all probability still greater than the capacity of all the apparatuses put together. Apparatuses are, in fact, exceptionally fast idiots that forget nothing, but they are idiots nevertheless. Therefore, although individual receivers and functionaries cannot take control of the apparatus, the society as a whole could. This is what the unspectacular new revolutionaries are trying to do. Society as a whole should program the apparatus as a whole to produce automatically improbable situations and to stop at desirable situations. To do this, society must reconstruct the circuitry of the sender to stop functioning and receiving and instead to program and constantly reprogram the broadcasts. Such a reconstruction is technically possible by means of telematics, which could support a worldwide dialogue about the apparatus. It allows for a broad, worldwide consensus relating to the programming of apparatuses to be reached cybernetically. Technically, the apparatus allows itself to be bent to serve the society. Technically, it could be made to serve a democratic function. But the reconstruction of the circuitry of the sender is not solely a technical but also a political question.
First, an agreement must be reached to remodel the senders so that they may serve a future consensus. This consensus to produce a consensus is what today's engaged envisioners, all the photographers, film people, video people, computer people, are trying to bring about. By reconstructing the role of images in society, they want to bring about a general reconstruction of all broadcasting. Then the global totalitarian apparatus could be avoided, and instruction would be directed dialogically against the apparatus, in other words, not program democracy but democratic programming. Only this must happen rather quickly, or the capacities of the apparatuses as a whole will surpass the capacities of the society as a whole. Chapter 11 To Discuss the technology that would enable the current discursive circuitry of technical images to be reconfigured into dialogical circuitry is called telematics. This name is new, an amalgam of telecommunication and informatics, but the principle to which the new name refers is far older, in fact, just as old as the technology of calculating and computing particle elements, a product of the first half of the 19th century. Yet the name's novelty is itself significant for understanding the current situation. For it shows that we have only very recently become aware of the principle of calculating and computing, that we have only recently realized that the same principle applies to both communication through the radiant streaming of particle elements, telecommunication, and the grasping of particle elements as new information, the production of technical images. And only since this has been recognized can technical images really begin to expose their inherent properties. We have been consciously experiencing the revolution of technical images for only a few years. In retrospect, this delayed awakening is surprising. It is surprising that the inventors of the first apparatuses, namely, of photographic and telegraphic apparatuses, did not recognize that both were constructed according to the same principle and so could be linked. Both photography and telegraphy rely on the programming of particle elements that they encode, the camera on a two-dimensional pictorial code and the telegraph on a linear Morse code. So both overturn the historical categories associated with space evolving in time and, with them, a social structure of groups spatially and temporally separated from one another. Both photography and telegraphy produce new social structures in which everyone, everywhere, is at the same time. By storing everything in a memory that is permanent and infinitely reproducible, fully accessible to all, photography renders and keeps everything present. Thanks to the telegraph, information is instantly accessible everywhere. And yet it didn't occur to anyone at the time that photographs could be telegraphed. Of course, it is possible to explain this initial oversight. One might say that photographs were coarse, that they were chemical, and so not compatible with the fine electromagnetic structure of the telegraph, that photographs had first to become electromagnetic to be transmitted telegraphically. But these technical explanations are insufficient. It is more probable that telegraphy was initially regarded as a new sort of writing and so did not appear to be constructed, exactly like a photograph, out of particles. 
Two separate developments arose from this misunderstanding, from the telegraph came the telephone and all the other dialogic telecommunications, and from the photograph came film and all the other technical images. And now it becomes clear that these two developments are fundamentally the same and that technical images are inherently suited to the forms of transmission used in telecommunications, that technical images are inherently dialogical. The convergence of images and telecommunications is so new that we experience it as a technical phenomenon and not yet as a cultural one. This is why we speak of things like lasers, cables, satellites, digital transmission, and computer language as if only technicians should speak of such things. But that is a temporary setback. The apparatuses will become more and more user-friendly, and in the foreseeable future, every child will be able to play dialogue with any other child, just as every child can now take a picture with no idea about photographic technique. To receive, synthesize, and transmit technical images will, in short, turn into a programmed gesture of key pressing. Therefore it is a fundamental misunderstanding to suppose that some prior technical knowledge is a condition of combining images with telecommunications. On the contrary, any such prior knowledge must be bracketed out to grasp the cultural and existential impact of telematics. This can be seen clearly by observing telematic gadgets as they are currently manufactured, for example, at the exhibition Electra that was organized in Paris recently. There one could see people synthesizing images on computers, storing them in memory, and transmitting them to others in dialogue. The result is a game of program permutation, that is, empty chatter. In evidence here is a form of distraction at the intellectual, political, and aesthetic level of the nursery. People press their dialogical keys according to a program prescribed by senders. The exhibition organizers, senders, insist that the exhibition is intended to introduce people to telematic technology. It is meant to be a kind of elementary school for telematics, and so the low level is to be expected. But in fact, with this and nearly every other instance of telematic gadgets today, this is the sender's way of subordinating the dialogical function of technical images to the command discourse of the sender, to make dialogical nets support discursively bundled transmissions. The strategy is generated automatically. The sender functions in such a way as to make the dialogic threads spontaneously strengthen and solidify discursive bundles. And so it is difficult to recognize the revolutionary potential of telematics, its capacity to tear discursive bundles apart. From looking at telematic gadgets, it is not immediately clear what sleeps within, for example, that discursive newspapers delivered to the door could be replaced by video discs to which we could respond, or that instead of writing letters, we could exchange experiences, thoughts, and feelings with one another in the form of images. Instead of going into town, we could shop and take care of legal and political business such as voting from a terminal at home. In short, it is not immediately obvious that telematics, even in its current form, is technically capable of rendering superfluous such things as newspapers, books, letters, businesses, offices, factories, theaters, cinemas, 
concert halls, and exhibitions, but also such things as the postal service, radio and television, or money. In other words, it is not immediately obvious that telematics, even in its present, underdeveloped form, has the potential to overthrow all current discursive as well as dialogic social structures. We have probably never been so incapable of predicting the immediate future. Every revolution has paralyzed its victims and rendered them blind, for example, the aristocracy in the French Revolution or the Jews under Nazism. But the telematic revolution affects the whole society, not just part of it. And so even those who have set it in motion can see where it's going. It is not from fear that we close our eyes to the immediate future, rather we do so because we can confront the triumph of the images that flood over us and that we ourselves now partly produce. This triumph doesn't frighten us, on the contrary, it awakens a feeling of emptiness. Obviously we are happy that things like work, politics, and art, in short, history in the traditional sense, have no future. We are happy to get rid of all those things that restrict us. But what will be left? Everyone all over the world will shortly be accessible to us, we'll be playing chess with someone in the antipodes and spending an amusing evening with geographically scattered friends around an electronic round table. Only, what will we talk about with these people, when we all have the same, centrally programmed information? When we are served by the same central memory? And when we are so neutralized that even as our interests appear to conflict, the conflict has been fed into us from the central memory. Even our arguments are empty chatter, example, as can be seen in pseudo-dialogue such as parliamentary debates or so-called negotiations between employers and unions. The telematically drawn, dialogic threads will carry no conversations but only empty chatter. And the more they may seem to bring us together, the more they will disperse us into isolated individuals who have nothing to say to one another. They will grind those human bonds such as love and friendship, but also hate and antagonism, down into empty chatter. And although the threads appear to be dialogic, they will in fact make all dialogue superfluous, redundant, hence the feeling of emptiness. Before I attempt to show that it is a mistake to close one's eyes to the telematic revolution, that it contains possibilities for real dialogue of unprecedented richness, I must discuss the relationship between discourse and dialogue in general. From the standpoint of communication, every social structure is characterized by collaboration between discourse and dialogue. For from this point of view, Society is a web whose function is to produce and transmit information so that it can be stored in memory. Discourse is the method through which information is transmitted and dialogue the method through which it is produced. Because this essay is to be an investigation of the dialogic use of images, among other things, I will have something to say about the dialogic production of information in the following chapters. Using such communicological one criteria, societies can be classified into three types. The first type is the ideal society, in which discourse and dialogue are in balance. Dialogue nourishes discourse, and discourse provokes dialogue. The second type is the dialogic society. 
the Enlightenment presents an example. There are a great many dialogic circles producing an increasing quantity of information, scientific, political, and artistic. But because these elite circles have no means of passing the information on, the society threatens to fall apart into an informed elite and an uninformed mass. The third type is the discursive society. The late medieval period offers an example of it, the centrally radiating discourse of the church controls the society, the sources of information threaten to dry up from an absence of dialogue, and the society is threatened with entropy. The medieval, Catholic characteristics of the present time become recognizable if one applies this model. Centrally radiating discourses dominate us, too, and society is threatened with entropy. The telematic dialogues that are technically possible now appear as a variant of medieval disputation. They revolve around the radiating programs. And should they nevertheless lead to new information, it will now be disregarded as noise, whereas at that time, it was heresy, rendered ineffective through anathema. Such a comparison of the present with the Catholic Middle Ages also allows us to recognize differences. The crucial difference is the authoritative character of discourse of that time and the automatic character of discourse in the present. The Church was not an apparatus, rather it had an author, Jesus, and authorities, priests. The dialogues of that time were authoritative discussions between priests. Today apparatuses program discourse automatically, this can be seen by the absence of any author or authority. Telematic dialogues today carry neither authority nor responsibility. At that time, unwanted information that may have been generated through dialogue, for example, in the so-called dispute on universals, too was authoritatively condemned by means of anathema. It was suppressed but rumbled on below the surface. Today, however, Unwanted information that may be generated in an ordinary discussion is automatically removed from the dialogical web and fed back to the sender, as happens with market surveys. The information is reabsorbed and, in this way, reinforces the tendency of the sender to become more and more indistinct and inauthentic. In contrast to the Catholic Middle Ages, discourse today automatically approaches entropy and only in this modified sense can it be said that we are becoming more Catholic, Catholic equals kota holon equals up for all. Unless, of course, and this is the point I am about to discuss, the dormant dialogical possibilities of telematic technology were to be used against, rather than in support of, the discursive social structure. At present, telematic gadgets, all the videos, video games, video discs, and cassettes, in fact, support the senders that program them. The feeling of emptiness we get from them is justified. It is not their technical construction that causes them to function in this way, however, rather their users are programmed to use them in this way and no other. On the contrary, they are technically constructed to serve a truly dialogic function. Users of gadgets are programmed to distract themselves. Distraction is the contract between images and people. Therefore people use telematic gadgets to distract themselves. 
This use contradicts the gadget's inherent technical construction, and only by being used in this way do they become gadgets. If the potential of these telematic resources were to become clear, they could become powerful tools to oppose the discursive society. The reason this hasn't happened yet is that the general agreement favors dispersal and puts assembly at a disadvantage. The unspectacular revolutionaries mentioned earlier are trying to show people that telematic resources could support a general discussion of the current state of separation. The unspectacular revolutionaries are convinced that telematic devices will, as a result of the way they are organized, shatter the present consensus and build a new, dialogic one. For if people turn to telematic technology to use it for conversation, rather than to be distracted by it, then technical images suddenly change character. Suddenly they become surfaces where information is produced and through which people can enter into dialogue. They suddenly play the meditating role that linear texts once played between correspondence, they become letters, except that images can carry infinitely more information than texts. For surfaces consist of infinitely many lines. The art of letter writing is almost lost. Images that can be telematically manipulated could give rise to an art that is still inconceivable, a pictorial dialogue infinitely richer than linear, historical dialogue could ever have been. Such a society, in dialogue through images, would be a society of artists. It would dialogically envision, in images, situations that have never been seen and could not be predicted. It would be a society of players who would constantly generate new relationships by playing off moves against counter moves, a society of hominis ludentes in which inconceivable possibilities would open to human existence. But that is not all. As a result of this creative play and counterplay, a consensus would arise, allowing society to program the apparatuses by means of images. Apparatuses would then serve this broadly human intention, which is to say, to release people from work and free them for play with other people in a way that constantly generates new information and new adventures. I believe this is the utopia that engages the unspectacular revolutionaries. After this digression, another look at the possibilities that lie dormant in telematic equipment, at the silly twiddling with telematic gadgets, shows where most cultural critics go wrong. They try to criticize the radiating centers to change or do away with them. But revolutionary engagement has to begin not with the centers but with the silly telematic gadgets. It is these that must be changed and changed in ways that suit their technology. Should this be successful, the centers will collapse of their own accord. No longer historical but rather cybernetic categories must be used for criticism. At the end of the previous chapter, I said that the technical images would have to be reformed to serve a dialogical function quite quickly because otherwise it would be too late. Telematic devices showed that this could happen very soon, perhaps even immediately. The silly twiddling with these devices, however, also shows that it is possible to miss the deadline. For the way telematic gadgets are used now, to produce empty chatter and twaddle on a global scale, 
a flood of banal technical images, definitively cements in place all the gaps between isolated, distracted, keep-pressing human beings. Soon there will be nothing more we can say to one another, so now is the moment to talk it over. Chapter 12, To Play The central problem to be discussed with regard to a dialogic society is that of generating information. It is this problem that was called creativity in former times. How do we get information that is unpredictable and improbable? It looks as though it suddenly appears from nowhere, as if it were a miracle. Hence the concept creatio ex nihilo, hence the belief in a creator god, and hence the veneration of creative people, above all so-called artists. The problem of generating information must be lifted out of this mythologizing context to grasp the revolutionary possibilities of a telematic society, a true information society. A mythologizing approach to the problem of information generation seems forced on us. Looking at the world as it appears around us, one cannot repress the feeling of standing in a super-miracle composed of miracles. How did the wonderful organization of the story heavens come about, an organization whose complexity becomes more amazing the more closely we examine it? The more deeply we probe into the structures of organisms, beginning with protozoa up to the human brain, the more we are gripped with astonishment over the sheer, incredible complexity of the innumerable factors that are in play. And what is there to say of the human brain, into which we are only just beginning to gain some insight, and that is such a complex organ at so many interconnected levels that it seems presumptuous to even attempt to explain it, to say nothing of imitating it. In the face of such a miraculous world, so miraculously put together from such miracles, one cannot initially help ascribing it to a creator. One must acknowledge a few unacceptable things in the creation, such as suffering and death, but who are we, creations that we are, to question the Creator's plan? All these totally improbable situations, like the Milky Way, protozoa, and human brains, all this information must have had some sort of intention we are unable to see to fit into the general configuration of the world. But couldn't one also ask whether another sort of world might have accidentally been produced? And such an impertinent question turns our admiration for the world into its opposite. As an example, suppose the world were just a little bit different, just a very little bit, for example, instead of aluminum, there were another, comparable elements in Earth's upper crust. Then, of course, earthly organisms would look completely different, in fact so different that it would make little sense to call them life. Obviously there could be no talk of human beings or human brains. And yet in the long run, ceteris paribus, all other things being equal, in such a case, something just as complex as protozoa and human brains would necessarily appear. After this demythologizing question, the world no longer appears as a miraculous creation but as one of very many but not infinitely many chance configurations. The heavenly creator then no longer seems either a necessary or unnecessary hypothesis but one refuted by the world as a play of chance. For then the improbable situations, the world's information, 
appears to have been randomly generated rather than intentionally fabricated. The human brain, then, no longer appears as part of a plan for the creation but as the result of an accidental biological development that itself came into being accidentally as the result of chemical processes that occur on the earth in one particular pattern and no other. The demythologizing question shows how information in the world and information in general is generated by synthesizing previous information. But it shows even more. If information is synthesized from previous information, there must also be an opposing process, namely, information analysis, replacement, and disinformation. And the world shows clearly that there is such a process, so clearly in fact that it takes a mythologizing view of creation to cover it up. All information ultimately disintegrates. Every human brain eventually dissolves into its constituent elements. The species Homo sapiens, life on Earth, the Earth itself will finally follow the world's general tendency to lose information and be dissolved, second law of thermodynamics. And such information decay is more fundamental than information production because information is produced through improbable accidents and decay occurs through probable accidents. Having demythologized the production of information, we stand face to face with a newly structured universe. It is no longer a creation that emerged from the void and proceeded in linear fashion, step by step, in six days, toward a predetermined goal, the universe of linear history, but an intractable game of chance in which all possible accidents, including improbable ones, must eventually occur but in which all these possibilities inevitably converge on a probable, uninformed situation, a heat death. We no longer face a straight way forward but a path of circles superimposed on one another, linking into one another, epicycles of information that undermine themselves and one another. Rather than composition, one might better speak of the decomposition of the world. We face absurdity. It is relevant here that the apparent linearity of the second law of thermodynamics, everything tends toward entropy, is in fact only a point, namely, that point from which information arises and to which it returns. The linear, historical perspective cannot be preserved in an absurd universe. Information is a synthesis of prior information. This holds true not only for the information that constitutes the world but also for man-made information. People are not creators but players with prior information, only they, in contrast to the world, play with a purpose to produce information. The evidence for this difference, this intention, is that human information is synthesized far more quickly than so-called natural information. New architectural styles and scientific theories arise from earlier ones much faster than mammals arise from reptiles, for example. And this is because nature plays without purpose, by sheer chance, and human beings play using dialogue. Dialogues are controlled games of chance. They allow information that is already stored to be combined in all possible ways to construct new information. The word dialogue ordinarily suggests a game of chance in which each of two or more memories, usually human brains, tries to synthesize the information stored in the other. 
but they can also be inner dialogue, in which one memory plays with the information it stores. When it produces new information, such an inner dialogue characterizes what is called, in common usage, a creative individual. A telematic society would produce a network of dialogues that might be considered an inner dialogue for the whole society. The whole society would be creative in this sense. No one should think, however, that merely by imagining this playful society, we have escaped the myth of creativity. The mythical is now hidden within the concept of a purpose, what is now secret is that society plays with the purpose of producing information. It is therefore appropriate to defy this concept of purpose, which is to say, decision or freedom, despite the risk losing one's bearings. To minimize this danger, I will stick to the following model of the brain, the telematic society as a global superbrain. The first insights into the function of the brain begin to appear. The striking thing is the increasing difficulty in distinguishing between inherited and acquired information, that is, between Lamarck and Darwin. If you look at the brain as an organ for data processing, then the brain itself becomes the hardware, and the processing of data, that which was once called mind, becomes the software. One could maintain that the hardware brain is inherited genetically and that the software mind is, for the most part, culturally acquired. But such a comparison with a computer is untenable. The organization of the brain changes under the influence of incoming information, and if the stream of incoming information should be interrupted, the brain is irreparably damaged. This has been demonstrated in cats and rats completely isolated from the environment. One is forced to see the human brain as largely a cultural product. On the other hand, one cannot claim that mind is completely acquired. A newborn child has practically no mental processes at all because there are no data to be processed. But structures for basic data processing are in the brain genetically. In short, the brain really is an inherited organ, but it can only function in a cultural situation, and mind really is a cultural phenomenon that cannot exist without a brain. The question of purpose, the decision or freedom to produce information, process data, must be posed in the context of this new, still fragmentary awareness of brain function. It is already clear, in any case, that we will have to abandon such mythical entities as the free spirit or eternal soul. Purpose cannot sprout from such chimeras. To say that a newborn child has a soul or possesses a spirit is to caricature the rudimentary mental processes underway in its brain. When an electrode is introduced into the brain of an experimental subject and an impulse is sent into a specific part of the brain, this person will do exactly what the experimenter predicts, count to ten and insist on having freely decided to do so. This makes clear that such a decision is the result of an exceptionally complex process involving the computation of incoming with stored information, leading to a specific behavior and changing the brain's structure. And that is true of any kind of decision. The matter can be described as follows, the so-called I forms a nexus point in a web comprising streams of information in dialogue, storing information that has passed through. 
This is in fact the case for both inherited information and for the overwhelming majority of that which is acquired. At this nexus point, unpredictable, improbable computations occur, new information. This new information is experienced as intentional, freely controlled, because each like is a unique nexus point, distinguished from all other nexus points in the web by its position and the information it stores. It is not only neurophysiology that presses such an account of intention on us but many insights gained in many other disciplines as well. If one regards the I as a nexus point in a dialogical web, society necessarily appears as a superbrain made up of individual brains. And the telematic society would distinguish itself from earlier societies only insofar as its cerebral net character has become conscious, enabling us to start consciously manipulating the net structure. The telematic society would be the first to recognize the production of information as society's actual function and so to systematically foster this production, the first self-conscious and therefore free society. As long as images operate as they do today, our society is a miserable superbrain, supporting a supermind with very little that is superlative, for the current circuit diagram with bundles radiating out from a center has been constructed in keeping with a model of the brain that is long out of date. We now know that the brain is not centrally controlled but governed through an interaction between areas and functions of the brain that are to some extent interchangeable. The form of contemporary society embodies an unsatisfactory and in part incorrect perception of the society's cerebral, net-like character. Mass culture, proliferating kitsch, the descent into boredom, into entropy, are the results of this faulty organization. As a result, the real function of society, of the mind, is thwarted. Rather than producing improbable, adventurous things, Contemporary society is close to exhausting the information that is fed into it. It is a stupid society. Today we have access to deeper insights into brain function and telematic technologies that would permit us to turn a stupid society into a creative one, specifically on the basis of a circuitry that does justice to the interaction among brain functions. In such a social structure, there would be no more broadcast centers. Rather each point of intersection in the web would both send and receive. In this way, decisions would be reached all over the web and, as in the brain, would be integrated into a comprehensive decision, a consensus. That which is known in the biological sciences as the leap from individuation to socialization, for example, the shift from single-celled to multiple-celled organisms or from individual to herd animal, would here be achieved at the level of the mind, intention, decision, freedom. The single eye would maintain its singularity, as does the single cell in an organism and the single animal in the herd, but the production of information would take place at another level, namely, at the level of society. The socialization of freedom just described is repugnant because it refutes Judeo-Christian anthropology and all the anthropologies that have followed from it. According to these anthropologies, each person has a core that must be preserved and developed. The socialization of decision-making and freedom would threaten this core with dissolution. 
We now know, however, that this core is a myth and that the anthropologies are untenable. In fact, we know this from completely different disciplines that converge, neurophysiology, depth psychology, informatics, and above all, phenomenological analysis. Eidetic reduction demonstrates that I is an abstract hook on which to hang concrete circumstances and that in the absence of those circumstances, the I reveals itself to be nothing. A socialization of freedom emphasizes the concrete relations that bind us to one another and so does not threaten to dissolve identity but on the contrary to reveal it. We only really become an I if we are there with and for others. I is the one to whom someone says you. The crucial thing about such a dialogic reordering of society, about this dialogic life, Buber, is its playfulness. Society as a dialogical cerebral web must be regarded as a social game, and the information such a society produces must be regarded as moves in a sort of chess game. Nature only produces information by chance, but society produces it purposefully, which is to say, methodically, assuming the play has a strategy. Only the social game, in contrast to the chess game, is an open one, which is to say that rules can change in the course of the game. I will have more to say about a strategy for the future governing of society, about cybernetics, and about the openness of the information-producing game in the course of this essay. Here I will just stay with the possible means of taking the argument further. A telematic society would be a dialogic game in systematic search of new information. This disciplined search can be called freedom and the direction of the search purpose. The separate pieces of information, as they appear in the course of the telematic play, single, constantly revised technical images, will become increasingly improbable as a result of this strategy. Therefore it is nonsense to try to predict it. What we're seeing on our monitors now, however exciting it may sometimes be, is only a pale shadow of what we could do. As the brain only produces a fraction of what it is capable of producing, so does the telematic society have unforeseeable possibilities. But the telematic society will develop faster than the brain. For the brain appeared as an accident in the natural game of chance, and the new society will appear as one move in a purposefully directed social game. It will arise from the same aleatory play that gave rise to brains, but in these brains, the aleatory play has become strategic, a game of chance that has turned against chance. In short, in the telematic society, it will become clear that the brain has accidentally been built to be capable of countermanding chance. This has always been true of human beings, by coincidence, we are free beings. But in the new society, this human tendency to defy accident, to reject entropy, will develop freely for the first time. For the first time, people will be in a position to methodically generate information, and not only empirical information, using a technology modeled on perception. Information will then surge like a rising tide against entropy. If we define human beings by their negentropic tendency, then this is when they will become truly human for the first time, that is, players with information, and the telematic society, 
this information society, in the true sense of the word, will be the first genuinely free society. Chapter 13, To Create As I was concerned to show in the last chapter, the production of information is a game of assembling existing information. Such an insight into the creative process may destroy the mythical aura of creation but not its unique excitement. On the contrary, this creative inspiration, this going out of oneself into the information to be produced, into an adventure, is exactly what freedom is. That can be seen clearly in creative people of the past and present, whether they were scientists, technicians, philosophers, artists, or activists. They work freshly, without self-regard, from the information they have stored within themselves, and they then put works into society they publish. They move from themselves into their work. But this way of producing information through inner dialogue cannot be maintained much longer. Even now, most information is produced not by individuals but by groups in dialogue, and as far as the work goes, the concept is undermined by the reproducibility and insubstantiality, the immateriality of technical images. What happens to creative inspiration in the production of a video clip, for example, in which many people participate and where the work, the tape, cannot only be endlessly reproduced but also continually changed? For a telematic society, this is a crucial question. There, all information will be synthesized through intersubjective conversations, will be infinitely reproducible, and will be designed to be changed by its receivers and forwarded as new information. Can there be creative inspiration in such a situation, without author or work? Can there be that disregard of self, that absorption in work that constitutes freedom? The issue here is first the reproducibility of all generated information. The Latin copia means surplus. To copy, therefore, would be to make superfluous. The question is, what is actually made superfluous by copying? The first answer is that it makes the human labor of repeating existing information, rewriting, redrawing, recalculating, superfluous because copying is done by apparatuses. But that is just the first, harmless answer. Another, and far more dangerous one appears on closer consideration, copying makes all authority and all authors superfluous and so puts creative inspiration to the test. This can be seen, for example, in the problem of copyright in light of the copy shop. The words author and authority come from the verb augura, meaning to cause to grow, usually translated, however, as to establish. Here one has Roman agriculture in mind, where seed is put in the ground to grow. We are in a Roman myth, in fact this one, the city of Rome has a founder, an author, Romulus, who put it into the ground so that it could take root and grow to become a world power. Although Romulus is the author of the city and the world, Obi, the city and the world could not grow if they were not doubly connected to their author. These connections are called authorities. The retroactive, religious, one is the great authority, magisterium, the other, which drives the author forward, 
is the lesser authority, ministerium, and together they form the social structure. This Latin myth and the authoritative social structures that devolve from it carries over from the Roman Empire to the Church and from there to almost all modern administrative forms. Channels of authority bound up with authors can be recognized everywhere, in the army, in factories, in parties and states. I would suggest at this point that the reproducibility of technical images, in fact of all information, renders the structure superfluous, definitively removing all authority and all authors. That is the so-called crisis of authority, and that is the reason for the increasing rarity of great people authors. Reproducibility makes all lesser authorities, those who pass messages, superfluous because it enables messages to be passed automatically in vast quantities. The copy shop requires no minister, no press, no publisher, in short no more administration. And reproducibility renders all great authorities, those who guarantee the accuracy of messages, superfluous, for copies are automatically accurate and become even more so as copying technologies improve. In the copy shop, there is no further need for a master, priest, pontifices equals bridge builders, in short for any religion. Put another way, copying makes administration and religion automatic. Ministers and masters, for example, publishers and photographers, still defend themselves against this automation. Publishers maintain that automatic copying is blind, without criteria, and publishers must control copy apparatuses to filter the deluge of information. Photographers maintain that automatic copying is inaccurate and that only when they control the apparatus' authorized print can the copy be faithful to the intended message. Yet both these attempts to rescue authority for the information society are fighting from lost positions. As to the filtering of messages, criticism, censorship, I will come back to this and try to show that the apparatus can do it automatically. As to accuracy, it is a technical question, and there can be no doubt that copies will become clones in the near future. But there is another matter relating to accuracy. In the coming information society, messages are to be synthesized by their receivers into new messages. I contend that despite these objections to my hypothesis, every authority will disappear because reproducibility has made it redundant. For the moment, copy apparatuses seem sometimes to be copying originals, texts, photographs, films, and in original is a message that springs from the mouths of authors, from aura, mouths. Looking more closely, however, one sees how this mouth is arranged, Greek, mythos, sound springing from the mouth. The information does not come from a mythical author but from outer and inner dialogues in which artificial memories, apparatuses, will play an ever-increasing part. The myth of the author assumes that for significant messages, there are originals produced by great people as a result of inner dialogues. The mythical author creates in isolation. Of course, one wouldn't want to deny that even that great person works in a context containing the information that nourishes him. But one would claim that through the creative effort of the author, 
something absolutely new appears, something arises from nothing. The myth of the author, and the original, distorts the fact that the production of information is a dialogue. Now that messages are reproducible, this fact can no longer be disguised. A photograph, for example, is the result of a dialogue between the photographer and the photographic apparatus and a whole series of less obvious conversation partners, and it is ridiculous to call each one of these partners an author. Given the copy shop and cybernetic control of dialogue, all authors, founders, donors, Moseses, founding fathers, and Marxes, including the Holy Creator, have become redundant. According to the myth, each society is the work of a superhuman hero, a so-called culture hero suspended in isolation, in the icy heights. Romulus, as the founder of Rome, is only one of countless examples, each tribe of Amazonian Indians has such a creator, often in the form of an animal. Therefore each mythical society is unique and cannot be copied. It would be monstrous even to suppose that a society founded by a mythical wolf could be transposed onto another founded by a condor. Each mythical society is an original and as such the center of a unique universe. The break of modern thinking with the ecclesiastical concept of society of a social form founded by Christ appears in repeated attempts to construct social structures through dialogue, through consensus, without individual founders. These resulted in societies that can be copied, example, Western democracies or socialist people's republics. Wherever they have been copied, mythical culture heroes have been deposed. Certainly the methods of conducting such nation-founding, constitutional dialogues have always been empirical so that some of the spokesmen in the dialogue, for example, the founding fathers, Robespierre, or Marx, were mythologized retroactively. This was about secondary authors. Today cybernetic theory and telematic practice is beginning to structure such dialogue in a disciplined and systematic way. The rising information society will not have even secondary authors. It is not original and so can be copied automatically anywhere, at any time. And what is true of nation founding is true for all future information. In the future, no creation of any kind will have an author, a foundational totem animal. It looks as though a telematicized society, characterized by reproducibility of all information, will have no space for creative inspiration, for freedom. Where every message is produced by arrangement, namely, as an answer to a challenge, there can apparently be no free authors, and where every message is generated dialogically and in part through dialogue with apparatuses, it appears that there can be no authors. And as a result, there can be no inspiration to generate information. But this is a false interpretation of the rising information society. The error can be seen in a consideration of how information is synthesized. The information available to us has astronomical dimensions and has long since passed the point where it can be stored in a human memory. We can expand our memory capacity and store larger and larger fragments of the available information. The average person today knows more than the universal genius of the Renaissance did, 
but it is more reasonable to store the available information in artificial memories. Furthermore, human memory is too slow to be able to compute a large quantity of information into new information. Data processing is faster by machine. So the inner dialogue has become inoperative. Great people can no longer function. Not only are authors no longer necessary, they are not even possible. Instead, we can have outer dialogue, intersubjective conversations that are disproportionately more creative than any that great people could ever have had, dialogues such as those that occur in the laboratory or work team, in which human memories are linked to artificial ones to synthesize information. Already some of the dialogues are producing such quantities of new and sometimes astonishing information as the great people of the past could never have dreamed. And the telematicized society will be one giant dialogue of this type, a dialogue in which everyone could theoretically participate. I will use a chess game to illustrate the spirit that prevails when information is being produced in this way. Apparently chess is a zero-sum game, two opponents play, one wins, the other loses, and the result is nothing plus one to one equals zero. The strategy of the game is to lure the opponent into traps to defeat him. The word strategy comes from strategos, commander, and carries the sense of stratagema, cunning. So chess appears to be a cunning game of war, ending in nothing. But the actual experience of the game contradicts this. For as the game proceeds, unpredictable, improbable, exciting situations, i.e., informative situations, occur that make chess interesting. In the context of such situations, such a chess problems, a victory becomes uninteresting, and the point rather becomes making the most of them. Both opponents ally themselves against the problem, polemic becomes dialogue. They remember that stratagema comes from stratos, that is, level, and that this again comes from the ancient root str that we recognize in distribute. Their strategy is now to compute the bits of information distributed in the unexpected situation to new levels. And they are inspired. For chess has become a plus-sum game. Both players have gained new information. The example of the chess game is intended to characterize the emerging homo ladens, this playful, telematic existence. It is meant to show what is meant here by a playful strategy, which is not the setting of cunning traps, art in the sense of artifice, but a methodical computing of scattered particle elements, art in the sense of skill. It is meant to show how outer dialogue can be productive. And above all, it is meant to show how outer dialogues are inspirational. It is meant to show how players, forgetting themselves, happen to produce information, and how the concept of creative inspiration therefore refers to that spirit in which global telematic dialogue occurs. The inner dialogue that was once so exciting can easily be simulated with chess. One sits alone at the board and alternatively moves the white and black pieces. Interesting, informative situations can result. But as soon as a second player joins in, it immediately becomes clear how limited the initial situation was. With the addition of the second player, 
the competency has doubled. Under pretilomatic conditions, including the present, the singular way of playing was responsible for almost all information, scientific, philosophical, artistic, or political. Telematics, on the other hand, will involve very many players in the game, and the playing competence will expand exponentially. All the information generated until now by great individuals, our entire cultural inheritance, will be regarded as relatively sparse in the future. Compared to synthetically produced information of the future, compared above all with future images, the culture of the past will appear as a mere starting point. It will become clear that a systematic, conscious creativity really begins with telematics. The telematic method of generating information through outer dialogue, through dialogues in which all human beings and all artificial intelligences could theoretically participate by means of cable or satellite, is basically only a technical application of the theoretical perception that all information arises through the computation of bits of information. Telematics is a technology of information production that rests on theory, as, say, the 18th-century machine was a theory-based technology for the production of informed objects. We may therefore anticipate a revolution in the field of information production that is in every respect the equal of the industrial revolution in the field of object production. For example, in the industrial revolution, vehicles developed slowly, from the log canoe to the three-master ship and from slave porters to the stagecoach. Each separate phase of the development had an inventor who was often anonymous but who may have been a god or half-god near the beginning. After the Industrial Revolution, this development not only accelerated but its character also changed fundamentally. From the sailboat, not only a steamship and an airplane, and from the stage, coach and automobile and a rocket, but the theory that now entered into the picture lifted the process of production from the competence of an inventor into the competence of the impersonal discourse of science and technology. Therefore the three-mastership bears a far stronger resemblance to the log canoe that preceded it by 10,000 years than it does to the rocket, which follows by only 200 years. With the introduction of theory into the production process, a new order of object was achieved in a single bound, and the life of a man of the 18th century AD resembled that of a man living in the 18th century BC far more closely than it did that of his grandson. A comparable leap is currently underway in the field of information production. Before the information revolution, there was a slow development of, for example, pictures, from cave painting in Lascaux to film, or in music, from the drum to the electronic synthesizer. Each individual phase of this development is credited to a great artist who was often nameless but who may have been a god in the first phases and, in the most recent ones, was a gifted creator type such as Cezanne or Mozart. After the information revolution, this development will not only accelerate but will acquire a fundamentally different character. Not only will there be images and music we never dreamed of, drawing on a wealth of information never dreamed of, but the information theory that is now brought to bear will lift the production process out of the competence of the individual creator into the competence of interpersonal dialogue. 
Therefore contemporary films resemble the cave paintings at Lascaux more closely than they do images of fractal equations on computer screens. And our lives resemble those of our 18th century ancestors more closely than they do those of our grandchildren. For genuinely disciplined, theorized creativity will only be possible after the myth of the author of information is abandoned. By introducing a theory of the production process, the empirical factor, intuition, inspiration, heuristic experiment, will not be neutralized or superseded, on the contrary, it will unfold to its full extent for the first time. The dynamics of technical innovation derive from the complex exchange between theory and observation, on one hand, and theory and experimentation, on the other. Intuition, inspiration, and heuristic experiment are all at play in developing a concord to a degree the inventor of the stagecoach could never have grasped. Inspiration and intuition can only be tested in the raster of theory, and in this sense, the concord is a far greater work of art than the stagecoach could be. Something similar can be expected from images that will be synthesized in the future. Creative inspiration only really becomes visionary power when it runs up against the raster of theory as embodied in apparatuses. Future images will be art at a high level because they will owe their production to this dialectic between the theory embedded in the apparatuses and the intuitive hallucinatory power of the envisioners. The telematic society will not therefore abolish creation but will, on the contrary, invest it with its real meaning. Creation there will not be limited to a few a great people who produce informative works empirically by means of a lonely inner dialogue. The time for such creative individuals, such heroes, is definitively past, they have become superfluous and impossible at the same time. One should add that the time of history, in the sense of linear consequence of res gesti one, is definitively past. Instead everyone will participate in the creative process and test their intuitions and inspirations against the theories embodied in apparatuses, of whose riches we as yet have no inkling. This information will no longer comprise works, objects, but messages without substance, challenges to everyone to continually produce new information from them. And yet this information will be more eternal than historical works, for not only can it be reproduced eternally but it can also be stored in eternal memories. Only when we stop thinking of the work, of information engraved in an object, i.e., when we get past the materiality of information, subject to the second law of thermodynamics, can we even begin to create anything immortal. The person of the future, playing at the keyboard, will be ecstatic about the creation of durable information that is nevertheless constantly available for a new synthesis. We can see this ecstasy in its embryonic form in children who sit at terminals. The person of the future will be absorbed in the creative process to the point of self-forgetfulness. He will rise up to play with others by means of the apparatuses. It is therefore wrong to see this forgetting of self in play as a loss of self. On the contrary, the future being will find himself, substantiate himself, through play. That I, that eidetic reduction, and neuropsychological, psychological, and informatic analysis, 
has shown to be an abstract concept, to be nothing, will be realized for the first time through creative play. The playing person will find himself in others through creative play. In this conversation, in this creative play of mutual recognition of the other, all are on equal, familiar terms. That is what is meant here by play, by create, and by telematic. These utopian thoughts are themselves caught up in the delirium of play. And so they hope to be received, changed, and sent on by the receiver in the same playful spirit. Chapter 14 To Prepare The question of freedom, of the capacity to deliberately decide to be informed, has run like a red thread, unanswered, through these reflections. For looking at the difference between natural and cultural information production from the outside, as a matter of degree, culture produces the unexpected more often than nature does, we arrive at a diluted freedom, what a human being achieves through strategic play may be achieved by nature as well, but it takes longer. And in seeing this difference from the inside, so to speak, as that between an implacably automatic nature and a creatively inspired human being, we come to regard freedom as subjective, we do experience our information as intentionally produced. But from a higher position, information such as a computer cannot be distinguished from information such as an amoeba on the basis of freedom because both arise as a synthesis of previous information. Perhaps the question of freedom can be posed more satisfactorily by trying to capture the difference between random and strategic computation at the moment both are generating new information, in that instant when new information appears, that is, not by comparing the computer with the amoeba but the rise of the computer with the rise of the amoeba. At first glance, it looks as though improbable situations occur under completely random natural conditions as leaps, one after the other, and so become increasingly improbable, as if nature were a staircase in which each step is less improbable than the last, and more probable than the next. The information available at each step is randomly computed to new information, which rises out of that step to form the next one. And nature's progress would appear discontinuous. This gives the impression of a natural history. Say, Increasingly complex atoms come from particles, a more complex atom arises from a simpler one, from atoms come more complex molecules, a more complex molecule arises from a simpler one, from molecules come more complex organisms, the more complex one arises from a simpler one, and a human being, as the highest level reached so far, is curiously able to write this natural history. By focusing attention on the moment in which the one step arises from the other, however, natural history, understood as discontinuous progress, disappears. To ask, for example, what really happens to an oxygen atom to turn it into a helium atom? Or what actually happens to a reptile to turn it into a primate? The answers do not accommodate discontinuous progress. At each step, the answer will be different from all others. Still, it is possible to recognize a common ground. For at each step, coincidences are constantly occurring that dismantle the step. 
The oxygen atom is always about to disintegrate into particles and the reptile to degenerate through random mutations in its genetic information. Once it is achieved, each level of information is in constant decay. There are also some very rare accidents that lead to the next informational level, but this new level begins to disintegrate the moment it has appeared. In nature, we are concerned with the staircase in constant decay as a whole and at each step. That is what is meant by the claim that nature is random, it falls apart, yields to entropy. And this disintegration is aleatory to such a degree that even in the ruins, new information is always emerging. If the concept of emergence is popular today, it is against such a broad backdrop of ruins. If you compare natural history with cultural history, that is, the random with the strategic production of information, intentional creation, freedom, appears in a new light. The difference then appears neither as a question of speed, as if history had been accelerating since the advent of mankind, nor as a question of one's perspective, as if cultural history were nothing but natural history from a human point of view, but as a reversal of direction, natural history runs toward decay, cultural history starts from decay, that is, human engagement no longer looks like a better method of producing information, nor does it look like a natural disposition. Rather it looks like an engagement against nature and above all against the inevitable natural decay of information, against death, against being forgotten. We produce information to avoid being forgotten, and to be free is to confront death. In comparing cultural history with natural history, it does appear that in both cases, a discontinuous progress is occurring amid general ruin. Even in cultural history, each new level of information begins to decay as soon as it appears. The Baroque had scarcely emerged from previous information, for example, before signs of decay became noticeable in it. And in cultural history, too, everything is prey to oblivion. Not only will everyone die, most having been forgotten, but cities, too, will fall, and there have undoubtedly been whole cultures that have been forgotten forever. Nevertheless, the tendency of cultural history is opposed to that of natural history. In nature, new information appears as an error, so to speak, as an unpredictable accident, in biology, mutations are discussed as errors in the transfer of information. And in culture, being forgotten is the accident, an accident that has, by the way, proven unavoidable so far. So the central problem in the intentional production of information is that of not being forgotten, of memory. From this standpoint, Telematics can be regarded as a technology that permits all fabricated information to be stored in permanent memory. In telematic dialogues, human and artificial memories exchange information to synthesize new information and to store it artificially. In this way, not only the new information but also the human memories that produced it are protected from oblivion. The real intention of telematics is to become immortal. For telematics fosters an awareness that freedom lies not only in producing information but also in preserving this information from natural entropy that we create not to die. This is not new. 
there have always been attempts to put information in permanent storage, epo ennis, or at least in media that degenerate very slowly such as bronze or marble. But it was always a lost cause, for all storage media, because they are material, which is to say natural, are subject to the second law of thermodynamics and must decay along with the information they carry. Only since the advent of electromagnetic images, immaterial, pure information, can we hope to escape the curse of being forgotten. Only now can we fabricate memories over which nature has no power. Telematic society is the first answer to the previously inevitable decay of all culture and everything associated with it into the void of oblivion, into death. And it is a technical answer. All information must decay if it is stored in a material medium. Once this is accepted, all linear models of history must be abandoned. History is then no longer a linear process of human beings transforming nature into culture. The situation is rather this, human beings progressively tear things from nature to impress information into them, that is, to turn them into cultural objects. Cultural objects produced in this way are used up, that is, the information embedded in them is washed out. Such used cultural objects are thrown away, and they form waste. There the information remaining in them decays through entropy, and the object returns to the nature from which it was initially torn. For example, an animal skin is taken from nature, and information is impressed on it, the cultural object shoe is produced. The shoe is worn, loses its information, and is thrown into the rubbish. There it decays according to the second law of thermodynamics and returns to an amorphous mass in that very nature from which it was initially drawn. We are looking at a cycle of nature, culture, waste, nature, with no thought of linear progress. All progressive historicism must be abandoned. Engaged against the degenerative cycle nature, culture, waste, nature, against the decay of information, human beings devise more and more durable supports, for example, plastic bottles instead of glass ones. But perversely, this halts the degenerative cycle not at the point of remembering but at the point of waste, of forgetting. The plastic bottle is discarded just as quickly as the glass one but lasts longer before returning to nature. Waste accumulated in this way contaminates the environment, seeps back into culture, and threatens to flood it with recycled, half-forgotten things, with kitsch. In answer to this threat, sciences of the discarded, such as ecology, archaeology, depth psychology, and etymology, have arisen alongside the sciences and humanities. They seek to recall the half-forgotten, to master the discarded material, a typical post-historical problematic. Telematics will put an end to this problematic situation that currently threatens us, for it will permit information to be generated and stored without a material support. Immaterial supports such as electromagnetic fields do not decay into waste, and the information embedded in them can be kept in cultural memory indefinitely. The cycle nature, culture, waste, nature will be halted at culture, not waste. 
As a result of the new opportunity to store information without material support, interest in material supports as information carriers will diminish radically. If I have access to a video library, why should I want to store 10 pairs of shoes in the closet? I will prefer to have as few objects as possible to have space to store my video cassettes, and these few objects will have to be as impermanent and disposable as possible. No plastic bottles, that is, but paper bottles. Waste will be reduced to a minimum, specifically to the minimum of essential objects of use, and it will return to nature quickly. Telematics will solve the problem of waste in this way, for it will allow us to disregard material supports for information. It will, on the other hand, present another, equally threatening problem. For if the circular pattern nature, culture, waste, nature begins to stall at culture rather than at waste, we will require a vast store for culture to provide storage for the flood of incoming information. Otherwise we will suffocate from a surfeit of information rather than of waste. It is already possible to see, in rough outline, what such a cultural reconstruction would look like. First, increasingly efficient artificial memories will be integrated into the culture. Second, the concept of a forgetting will have to acquire a new and fully adjustable meaning. Forgetting must achieve equal status with learning and be recognized as equally critical to information strategy. Third, it will become possible to delete redundant information, that which is already stored elsewhere, from specific memories. Redundant and informative situations will have to be systematically distinguished. For the time being, none of these methods is adequate to the excess of accessible information. In the distant future, this excess will become a primary concern because in contrast to sources of raw materials and energy, sources of information spring eternal. For telematic culture to achieve such a reordering of the cultural cycle, all the information previously stored on paper-like supports, especially texts and pictures, will have to be made electromagnetic. This translation from chemistry to electronics is already in progress. Photographs, films, and books are migrating to terminals, however unaware those affected may be. This technical revolution, which will cause chemical supports such as printer's ink or silver compounds to disappear, will certainly affect writing and image making. Those who write and make images will have to become envisioners. To put it another way, all contemporary technical images, but also all contemporary texts, should be regarded as harbingers of synthetic computer images. Only when the translation into the electromagnetic field is finished will we actually be able to store information in permanent memory to reproduce and transform it again there. Only then will information be not only safe but also constantly productive of new information. And so strategic, dialogical play with pure information will at last be set in opposition to nature's blind play of chance, making us immortal. That is the intention of telematics. The question is, what strategy will bring it about? Or in other words, what exactly is the difference between blind natural chance and the strategy of dialogue, that is, between entropy and egentropy, between inevitable coincidence and freedom? 
The answer lies in the fact that chance will inevitably combine all information, whereas in dialogue, redundant information will be erased. Freedom is essentially the difference between that which is redundant and that which is actually information, and the free person is the one who is competent to decide. Before I pursue the question of competence, I will give two examples, the discovery of how to make fire and the Newtonian worldview, that is, two exceptionally improbable, unforeseeable, and so highly informative situations. What made Stone Age people competent to start fires and Newton to develop his understanding of the world? Both appear to have played with chance, exactly as nature does. They latched onto accidents, such as a tree struck by lightning or an apple that fell on Newton's head as he slept, in the second example, Esai non a vero, a bentrovoto one. They did not select an accident by chance, however, but because they recognized in it a model of an entirely improbable situation. A chance occurrence became something that occurred to them. The Stone Age man was competent to recognize in the event a burning tree a model for an extremely improbable condition of a cooking and therefore meat-eating primate, and in this way, he transformed human beings into hunters of large game. Newton was competent to recognize in the falling apple a model for the fusion of Galileo's mechanics with Kepler's astronomy, and in this way, he founded modern physics. Both were competent to turn a redundant accident into unforeseeable information. Both were free. But how did they acquire this competence? How did they become free? In a time before telematics, mythical answers held sway. There were exceptional individuals, born geniuses. There were authors. Even then, one had to admit that this inherited information, this gift, was insufficient to produce a fire or Newtonian physics. Newton, for example, had to have known mechanics and astronomy to appreciate the falling apple incident. But it was still assumed that not all those who learned mechanics and astronomy would become Newton. Telematics teaches us something better, anyone can become Newton. To achieve such competence, it is necessary only to have participated in dialogical play. Dialogical play is a preparation for competencies, and participating players are made ready to transform redundancies into information. If only a few people were geniuses in the pre-telematic era, it was because most people were unable to participate in dialogue, rather they had to impress the information that had been generated in dialogue onto material supports, they had to work. By freeing people from the need to work, telematics and robotics will free humanity to be original, to be competent to transform the redundant into the informative. Robotics provides the requisite leisure, school, to turn telematics into a school for competencies, a school for freedom. The concept of competence is, in fact, a mathematical concept, and it can be quantified, but in this context, it takes on an existential coloration. Competence is the sum of all possible combinations, computations, of elements according to rules. For example, 
the competence of a chess game is the sum of all possible arrangements of the chess pieces according to the rules of play, and this competence is larger than that of checkers. Or the competence of a camera is the sum of all possible photographs that follow the rules programmed into the apparatus, and this competence becomes greater with each new apparatus. Or the competence of an English speaker is the sum of all possible combinations of English words in his vocabulary that follow the rules of the language, and it increases whenever he learns new words and rules. The sum of elements in the repertoire and the sum of rules in the structure can be called competence, and one can say that competence is the function of a given repertoire in a given structure. Competence increases when repertoire and or structure increases. For human beings, the structure of data processing is, put simply, the brain, and it is extremely large, so large that the greatest part of it lies fallow. Human competence increases when the repertoire, data, increases. And that is the goal that telematics has set. The thing that is immediately interesting about the play of telematic dialogue is not that previously unimaginable quantities of new information will appear but that everyone who participates will be prepared for this production, that they will all be competent to turn redundancies into information, that a whole society of geniuses, firefinders, newtons will result from such dialogue. In theory, Everyone will be telematically prepared and competent to produce more and more improbable, adventurous information. That is the strategy of freedom, information exchange with the purpose of raising the competence to transform redundant coincidence into the unforeseeable, into an adventure. This strategy has, unfortunately, an unpleasant side, for it applies to artificial intelligences as well as human beings. Telematics can steadily increase the competence not only of all human beings but also of all artificial intelligences, and these artificial intelligences will also become more like geniuses. So the question of how human intelligence and artificial intelligence are related will become the center of the dialogue very soon. We will face the unpleasant choice between humanizing artificial intelligences and making human ones more like apparatuses. But this may be only a pre-telematic view of the question. In telematic dialogue, human and artificial intelligences will be connected in such as a way as to make it meaningless to try to distinguish between the human and artificial factors involved in producing information. Artificial and human intelligences will merge into a unity in a way that can be seen now in embryonic form between photographer and camera. The freer people become, the more competent the computers to which they are connected. The more refined the artificial intelligence, the greater the visionary power of the people who produce images in collaboration with it. Of course, this human apparatus connection must be truly dialogical and not one in which the human being is programmed by the apparatus, as things stand now. In the chapter, To Celebrate, I will have more to say about such a dialogical programming, so-called self-programming. From the perspective of a truly operative telematic society, not from the standpoint of the present apparatus human being circuit, increasingly competent apparatuses lead to increasingly competent people. Telematic society is a school for freedom, 
freedom as a human engagement in producing information against entropy, decay, death. And yet to be free, does one have to want to be free? Before anyone made a photograph, and before anyone was competent to photograph, didn't someone have to have wanted to photograph? Does telematic society not rest on this commitment to freedom, without which it becomes nonsense? I will devote another chapter to a reflection on freedom in the hope that it will not lead us into the void of infinite regress.